Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 338. It's titled, Inflation, the National Debt, and U.S. Dollar, What Could Go Wrong? I've done a lot of episodes on inflation, on the national debt, on how exchange rates work, the U.S. dollar, central banks. I keep going back to these themes because there's some strange things going on. And these are important concepts to understand and to link together as we guide our finances. There's a lot of worries out there, and there's some conundrums, like the fact that housing prices are up double digits, yet inflation in the U.S., as measured by the Consumer Price Index, is still less than 3%. That the federal government is issuing trillions and trillions of dollars of new government debt, yet interest rates are rock bottom. That the money supply has increased over 25% in the past year. There's money flowing everywhere, yet it's not showing up in inflation measures, such as the Consumer Price Index. In this episode, we're going to connect those things together and consider what is it that could go wrong, where we could see inflation spike and the return on Treasury securities be negative. Last October, I released an episode titled How to Buy in a Hot Housing Market. I described LaPrille and I's quest to sell our house in Phoenix and buy one in Tucson. Since then, the housing market has gotten even hotter. The median existing home price in the U.S. is up over 16% year over year. The house we sold in Phoenix, Zillow estimates, is now worth 10% more than what we sold it for this past November. Houses around the U.S. are getting multiple offers, many above the listing price, and often the buyer is paying cash. One reason the housing market is so hot is individuals want to move. They have been working at home through the pandemic and realize they either want a bigger house or They're not going back to the office, and so they want to live in a less expensive locale. People are leaving high-cost states like California, New York, and New Jersey and moving to less expensive states or states with better weather. Arizona, South Carolina, Florida, and Idaho. At the same time, there's been a limited supply of houses. New housing supply was disrupted because of the pandemic, so there were not as many houses started during the early months of pandemic, and it's taken builders longer to get back up to speed. This housing advance is different from the housing bubble in 2006 and 2007. It's not debt-fueled. Back in 2005, near the top of the bubble, 
mortgage debt increased 15% year over year. But for the year ending December 2020, home mortgage debt only increased 4.3%, even though housing prices are rising at double-digit rates. That mortgage debt includes both first mortgages as well as equity lines of credit. There are less equity lines of credit now because the tax advantages are not as good as they were, but the overall mortgage debt is only up about 4.3%. And as a result, owner's equity, the amount of equity that the average homeowner has in the U.S. as a percent of their overall home value is 66%. That's the highest since 1990. We can compare that to 2011, the bottom of the housing bust, where the homeowner's equity was just under half of the value of the home. So homeowners own more of their home. Housing prices have clearly soared. If we look at the median home price relative to the median family income, that home price is about 3.6 times the income. The average is 3.1, and the all-time high was in 2006 at four times. So here's something interesting. Home prices are soaring, but if we actually look at inflation, the consumer price index, which measures the cost of living for consumers in the U.S., for the year ending March, it's only up 2.6%. And the shelter component is only up 1.7%. The Bureau of Labor Statistics points out that inflation doesn't calculate the price of houses. They consider that an investment or capital. They calculate the cost of living in houses. So they do a housing survey asking renters how much they pay for rent. They ask existing homeowners the following question. If someone were to rent your home today, how much do you think it would rent for monthly, unfurnished and without utilities? Owner's equivalent rent, which is that measure asking existing homeowners what they would charge to rent their home today makes up 24% of the consumer price index, whereas renting a primary residence, an apartment, or a house has an 8% weight. If home prices continue to go up like they have been, eventually that will translate into higher rents. But there's always a lag. And that's why we haven't seen a huge jump in inflation in the U.S., even though housing prices are soaring. Another driver of home price increases is the amount of money available. The money supply, or M2, which is made up of checking accounts, savings accounts, and retail money market funds, has increased 25% in the past year. Its three-year average growth rate is just about 14%. A few weeks ago, in episode 336, Own Something Real, I shared a stat regarding the money supply and said that as a percent of GDP, gross domestic product, the monetary value of output of goods and services has increased over the past decade. The money supply is about 0.9% of GDP. The inverse of that measure, if we take GDP and divided by the money supply, that is what is known as the velocity of money. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis describes the velocity of money as the frequency at which one unit of currency is used to purchase domestically produced goods and services within a given time period. In other words, they continue, it's the number of times one dollar is spent to buy goods and services 
per unit of time. How much turnover is there in currency, in the dollar? Not just notes and bills, but all dollars outstanding. And what we see is as the money supply gets to become a larger percent of the overall gross domestic product, the velocity falls. The velocity of money is 1.1. It's at a historic low. It's half the level it was back in 2007. Now, notice in that definition what isn't there. The money supply is increased. But if that money is flowing into houses, into stocks, into cryptocurrency, that's not counted as part of the velocity of money. And we have to look at who's on the other side of the transaction. When we bought a house in Tucson, somebody sold it to us. We paid with cash. The seller gave us the house and then the seller got the money. So the money supply didn't change from that transaction. It's a lot like the childhood game Hot Potato, where we just want to get rid of the money because we think its value might fall because of inflation. Prices could go up, so we might not be able to buy as much with a dollar. And so we see the money supply has increased. It has not yet led to a huge increase in goods and services prices, inflation, but it has led to an increase in other assets, houses, stocks, art, cryptocurrencies. We could call that asset price inflation, which is different than inflation of goods and services. The primary driver of this money supply increase has been the U.S. government deficit and the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing program. The U.S. federal budget deficit was 4.6% as a percent of GDP in 2019. That means the U.S. government spent more than they took in in tax revenue. And that difference was about 5% of the overall size of the economy. In 2020, the deficit to GDP was 15%. Over a $3 trillion deficit. And then the Federal Reserve bought over $3 trillion of government debt. And we can see the money supply is abundant in the economy because of the deficit and the Federal Reserve's actions. There are three primary theories when it comes to inflation. There's the monetarist school, which believes that inflation results from too much money chasing too few goods and services. In other words, from a money supply increase. But as we saw, we've not necessarily seen the inflation. So there's a paper by the economist John Cochran that was published in 2011 in the National Affairs, and he compared these three schools of thought as to what causes inflation. And he pointed out that the correlation between inflation and the money supply is very weak. You don't see a big jump in money supply doesn't necessarily lead to an increase in inflation, at least not right away. And that's certainly the case today. The second view regarding inflation is the Keynesian view, where you have the Federal Reserve trying to set a policy rate that influences longer-term rates. As interest rates go up, demand to borrow by households and businesses is diminished. There's less money creation and less demand by households and businesses to buy things. And so if there's capacity constraints, 
there's less of that. It's a view that looks at capacity constraints, slack in the economy, interest rates, and a big component is anchoring inflation expectations. So it's a little more nuanced view than just it's strictly a function of the money supply. There are many moving pieces. And this Keynesian view of inflation is more how I view inflation and what causes it. But that's only one aspect to it. Like most theories, none of them is absolutely correct. We end up taking parts of different theories. One of the weaknesses of the Keynesian view that Cochrane points out is this inflation anchoring aspect where the Federal Reserve and other central banks are trying to assess what inflation expectations are and how anchored are they? Do households and businesses expect higher inflation? Are they acting out on that? But Cochrane points out that historically, households and businesses and investors have been poor at estimating inflation. Inflation comes first, then interest rates often increase. Not the other way around where the inflation expectations priced in the bonds comes first and then you get the inflation. Cochran writes, are inflation expectations really anchored because everyone thinks the Fed is full of hawks will raise rates dramatically at the first sign of inflation? Does the average person really pay any attention to Fed promises and targets so that inflation expectations will coordinate toward whatever the Fed wants them to be? I don't think so. The average person isn't paying attention to what the Federal Reserve and other central banks are saying. A third view on what causes inflation is the one that Cochrane proposes, and that it's fiscal policy. That if investors believe that the budget deficit is too high and that the level of the national debt will get too high, that there'll be rollover risk, that the supply of bonds will be too high, that they start to doubt the ability of the federal government to pay back that debt, that that will lead investors to not want to hold that debt, nor hold the dollar, so that the dollar weakens relative to other currencies. There's a run on the central bank, and there's a run on the dollar. And when the dollar falls, that means import prices will increase, and that will lead to inflation. The level of the national debt has increased by over $4 trillion in the past year. The average interest rate that the U.S. government pays is about 1.5%. 64% of the debt matures in the next four years. It's shorter-term debt. Economist Ricardo Reese of the London School of Economics writes, people are only willing to lend to the government expecting a real return. And almost all government spending programs require providing or paying for real services or goods. Fiscal burdens are real, and it is an illusion to think that printing money makes them magically disappear. If central banks could magically create something out of nothing without bounds, then the whole of society could use monetary policy to solve any scarcity problem. Free lunches don't usually exist. Even if central banks and monetary policy work toward raising welfare, it is dangerous and almost always wrong to believe they can create real resources out of nothing. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. 
Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. So we have three views on inflation. It's caused by too much money chasing too few goods. It's caused by capacity constraints, which can be alleviated by central banks adjusting policy rates and influencing longer-term rates so that households and businesses are willing to borrow less and buy less and reduce some of those capacity constraints. And that Keynesian view also incorporates inflation expectations and anchoring them. Finally, a fiscal view is inflation is caused by an unwillingness of the private sector to hold a nation's currency or to hold its debt because they don't believe that they will earn a positive real rate of return. I think it's some of all of them. All of those aspects influence inflation, the strength of a nation's currency, and the willingness of investors to hold the national debt. Central banks and federal governments have a lot of capacity to create money, to increase the money supply, but they're not the private sector. They can't control the private sector's willingness to produce goods and services or the private sector's willingness to hold a nation's currency. They can try, but ultimately they can't. And that's why there's no free lunch, as Ricardo Reese says. 
It's the private sector that ultimately holds the cards to produce, to become more productive, to buy and sell. And if the money supply is increasing 25% per year and the private sector isn't willing to accept it and is playing hot potato, trying to get rid of that money as fast as they can, bidding up the prices of real things, then we'll get inflation. And we could see a central bank go insolvent because the central bank issues the currency. That's what a dollar is. It's a Federal Reserve non-interest paying note. Bank reserves are liabilities of the Federal Reserve. They pay interest, but commercial banks might decide they don't want to hold as much of those reserves and want to get rid of them because they don't believe they'll earn an adequate return given the risk. There's a paper that was released this past January by John Frost, Hyun Song Shin, and Peter Wirtz, and they shared how the Bank of Amsterdam was like a central bank. It was founded by the municipality of Amsterdam in 1609 and operated for over 200 years until 1820. Customers of the bank could deposit metal coins, which were being debased because they weren't pure silver or pure gold. And the Bank of Amsterdam would verify the validity of the coins and give the depositor a credit. They would have an account at the bank. And those account holders could pay for things and transact with others by settling these deposits at the central bank. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations spent several pages talking about the Bank of Amsterdam. This was a rock-solid bank. The authors point out that it could grant overdraft to key stakeholders, essentially lend to them. It increasingly became viewed as the value of its deposits was backed by the general strength of the Bank of Amsterdam's balance sheet, rather than the ability to redeem deposits in gold and silver. It started to be more like a fiat currency, where the value, as they say, was sustained by trust in the unit of account. Until depositors didn't trust the bank anymore. The Bank of Amsterdam started making loans, including massive loans to the Dutch East India Company. And there were losses, and depositors began to doubt the sustainability of the bank and wanted to pull their deposits, and did, and the bank failed. What the Bank of Amsterdam did not have was the backing of the government, the city of Amsterdam or the country itself, to back up the currency and make the central bank whole once losses got too great. The authors write, a key lesson is that for a central bank to play its role, the fiscal backing of the sovereign and its fiscal sustainability are essential. Being able to issue fiat currency gives the central bank considerable latitude to leverage up its balance sheet without loss of confidence in the value of money. However, the ultimate backing for the value of money is the solvency of the public sector. Is the government running too big a deficit to where the private sector begins to doubt the ability of the government to pay? In this case, the Bank of Amsterdam did not have the backing of the federal government, but most central banks around the world do, and because they do, the fiscal situation of the government is crucial. Now, before we start to get overly pessimistic on the dollar in the U.S. Central Bank and inflation, 
There's another thing going on here, and it's known as the exorbitant privilege. The dollar is still widely used, widely valued, particularly overseas. Another paper that I reviewed this week by Ethan Ilsetsky, Carmen Reinhardt, and Kenneth Rogoff. They write, we find that despite the widespread prediction that the world is evolving towards a more multipolar system, the U.S. dollar remains by far the most important anchor currency, particularly when one considers the integration of China and former Soviet bloc into the global financial system. They found that the use of the dollar is as widespread today as it was at the height of the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system before the dollar started floating freely. We see that with the Federal Reserve creating dollar swap lines with other central banks during the great financial crisis, again in 2012-2013, and in 2020. The Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and a few others borrowed close to $500 billion in U.S. dollars in 2020. Those central banks borrowed the money from the Federal Reserve, gave their domestic currency as collateral. Those central banks lent that money on the same terms to commercial banks in their countries, which then used those dollars to lend to businesses in those countries that needed those dollars to buy things that are denominated in the dollar because a large portion of trade is still denominated in the dollar. And why is that? Because it's more convenient. The dollar has been the reserve currency for decades now. There's a network effect. People use the dollar for trade because others accept dollars. And that's why the dollar is an anchor currency. There isn't any currency right now that is even close to taking its place. And that's why it's known as the exorbitant privilege. And why it's probably not prudent to make a big bet against the dollar right now. We have all these forces we have to monitor. We have to look at the amount of money supply being created. And that does worry me. And the level of deficit worries me. The amount of new debt issuance worries me. How that money is flowing into asset prices concerns me. Yet, I also see the other side, where the demand for the dollar is still there. It's being used. It's a very, very liquid market. Companies outside the U.S., governments outside of the U.S., still issue bonds in dollars because they're more liquid, and they can benefit from the exorbitant privilege of the dollar. Central banks want to keep their currency strong relative to the dollar, keep the exchange rate stable because it facilitates trade. In conclusion, then, inflation, the national debt, and the U.S. dollar, what could go wrong? Loss of trust, a run on the central bank, an unwillingness to hold treasury bonds. There does not appear to be any evidence of that now. Inflation will probably increase as a third of CPI, which is made up of shelter, you start to see rising rents. And because the Federal Reserve is willing to allow inflation to go a little higher. And because there will be capacity constraints as the economy reopens more and people want to buy more goods and services. But a little higher inflation, 3%, 4%, is different from very high inflation caused by a lack of confidence 
in a given country's currency, like we see in Turkey or Lebanon and other countries around the world. That's how all these things tie together. Inflation, the national debt, the U.S. dollar, with the biggest driver of high inflation being a lack of confidence in the dollar, and it weakens relative to other currencies. But who's that other currency going to be? Instead, we could say the dollar is weakening relative to cryptocurrencies, to Bitcoin, potentially to gold, or even other assets become more valuable because investors don't want to hold cash. We'll continue to monitor these things. We certainly look closely at it monthly in the monthly investment conditions and strategy report that I produce for Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Because these are the risk, and that's what we monitor. And we'll continue to share it on the show. That's episode 338. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you'd like to learn more about investing, I have two ways I can help with that. First, you can sign up for my weekly Insider's Guide email list, and I'll email you the links and show notes to that week's episode, an essay on money, investing, and the economy. And if you sign up for the Insider's Guide email list, you'll get a free investment guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, a summary of the key points of my book by the same name. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. If you would like additional guidance on building out an institutional quality investment portfolio, managing your assets as you save and invest in retirement, you can get that help and guidance by becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. It's where you can access professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to manage your investments like a professional. These are the same tools I use to manage my investments, to monitor risk, to estimate expected returns for different asset classes. Plus, membership includes model portfolio examples to help jumpstart your investing and much, much more. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.